right, welcome to another episode of Out from the Cube, and we are we are getting close to episode 100. I think this might be we're we're definitely like 94, 95. We started this a year ago. Today is April. We're recording this on April 18th. We'll release it tomorrow on April 19th, and uh, we're closing in on one year. We started this a year ago, April 24th. Uh, because I essentially what I wanted to do was uh, be held accountable to my personal growth, uh, and what that what what that involved was me, the podcasting that I listen to and consume, the books I read, the conversations I have, the people I meet, and I wanted to be accountable to continue to grow and and develop myself. And one way to do that was to start a podcast and have guests on, and then distribute what I'm learning and the things I'm considering out to the people that found uh, our podcast interesting. So we've done it for a year and I'm super excited about that, but really excited about today uh, simply because I guess two reasons. One, uh, I, I met our guest, uh, Ed Molitor, about, uh, I, we met on LinkedIn uh, and there's no other way but that. And because we met on LinkedIn, we shared some, in, uh, some commonalities in our backgrounds of coaching basketball and, and transitioning that into the business world. And, and two, because our schedules haven't matched up very well. We've been planning on doing this for maybe the past six or so weeks, and our schedules just never really matched up. And when you're a consultant and your boss says, go to Peoria to work with a team, that's what you do, regardless of who you have scheduled. So, so with that being said, Coach Molitor, I, I'm super excited about having you on. And I have listened to your content on your website. I've listened to your podcast. And uh, man, I'm, I'm really excited that we we're able to get this worked out today. Well, th thanks for having me. I'm, I mean, I am stoked to be here and congratulations on coming up on 100 episodes. I mean, being a fellow podcaster, doing that within a year is not easy. That's a heck of an accomplishment, my friend. Yeah, it's, uh, but here's the deal. You know, um, I come from the, the school of Don Meyer. Uh, Don Meyer was a mentor of mine and Coach Meyer, uh, for those that follow basketball or for those that don't. He coached at Lipscomb University in Nashville for 30 years, and then he coached up at Northern State University up in uh, South Dakota. And I consider him a mentor. He, he was very kind to me, and I got to know him fairly well. But he always this always stuck with me uh, when he said the things that impact your life are the people you meet and the books you read. Like That always resonated and stuck with me. And the, the podcast, uh, the guests that we've been able to have on, being able to meet people, uh, being able to find more content that I should be consuming to uh, continue to allow myself to grow um, has really been because of the podcast. You know, I, I think without question, coach, I don't, I don't think we would have crossed paths had it not been for this podcast. And because of that, I'm able to, you know, learn a lot from you or we're all, we're all able to learn a lot from you in the next hour. So yeah, it's been, it's been a, a, a great year with a lot of blessings and a lot of great relationships that I've been able to build. So, um, but I want to, I know we, we're kind of time crunch. We only have about 45 minutes of your time and, and I really appreciate it, but I, could you give everybody your background? I, I, I want to know, you know, how you got involved in coaching and the pit stops you've made and, and, uh, you know, and I guess how you, how you've ended up where you're at today. Well, coaching has always been in my blood. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie Hoop Dreams and you saw, uh, one of the main characters in Hoop Dreams was Gene Pignatore. Uh, St. Joe's. The night I was born, my dad was the head coach at Marist High School, Catholic High School in the south side of Chicago, and they beat St. Joe's in triple overtime. Mm. And uh, 
Gene Pignantor is a coach then, and he's still a coach now, which just blows me away. I wow. see him a few times a year. But, um, I, you know, I grew up in a locker room. I grew up on a court. I grew up around – I just grew up around the game, and I grew up around great men. I grew up around people that, that taught their players as much about life as they did about the game of basketball, and all very successful mm. – in different uh, various Hall of Fames. And, and at an early age, my, my dad taught me two things. Uh, he said athletics is a microcosm of life and basketball is a frame of mind game. And I just subconsciously always took that with me. And I, I was blessed to play at Creighton University, um, went to an NCAA tournament there. We won a conference championship. Um, my dear, my, my closest friends for life, uh, Coach Baroni is who I played for there. I, I coached for him. I was his assistant coach at Texas St. M University years later. Um, I also spent two years at St. Ambrose University, uh, played there. And when I, when I first went to college, I, I wanted to be a doctor. I went in as a pre-med major and um, Coach Fick called me in one day and, and he, you know, hindsight, he was probably trying to get me to quit the team. He said, hey, he, goes, he goes, hey man, you look exhausted. You ain't practicing worth the crap. He goes, your grades are kind of sliding a little bit. What is it? I mean, what's going on? And I was overwhelmed with my classes. I mean, I was taking some pretty high-level classes as a pre-med major. I didn't really realize you can major in biology and still go to med school, right? Mm. So I changed my major. And I changed my major to PE without talking to anybody about it because my dad was a PE teacher at Palatine High School. Mm. Well, my mom got my transcripts as I was still in Omaha for the summer, and that went over like uh, – it didn't go over well. Let's put it that way, okay? And so then I sat down. I really thought about it. And I said, what I really want to do is I want to coach college basketball. You know, I knew my dad had had a number of opportunities to go to the college level, uh, but he didn't because he wanted to, uh, I was his only son. He wanted to coach me. He wanted, if that's what I wanted, he never, never forced it on me. As a matter of fact, I took the entrance exam to our local Catholic high school, St. Vider, and I was going to go there. And, um, and, uh, but I, I really wanted to play for my dad. I knew the guys that were going to the high school and good guys, but anyway, so I, I decided to become a college basketball coach. And at that time, the thing to do was to get your MBA get your master's degree. So I, I majored in business and I loved, I loved business classes with the exception of accounting. I, I just could not stand accounting at all. Um, but the, the classes that resonated with me most were corporate leadership, uh, things of that nature. And that's where I first read Stephen Covey's seven habits and I fell in love with it. And mm. uh, it dawned on me at a very early age. And it's when you're 49, you can say 22 was an early age. Okay. Yeah, so, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm closing in as well. I celebrate yeah. a birthday tomorrow, but I'm three behind you. I'll be 40. Yeah, we got all sorts of things going on. We got the century mark of the podcast. We yeah. Got the birthday. Well, happy birthday, man. Yeah, thank you. Um, so anyway, so um, I realized reading the book how much this related to coaching athletics, regardless of the sport, right? And regardless right. of what level. And there, there was so much to it. So I really took that with me. And I, I was a grad assistant at Lewis University, Division II school, which is, um, was at the time uh, the best Division II conference in the country. You had Southern Indiana, where Bruce Pearl was, yeah. Kentucky Wesleyan, who was Kentucky Wesleyan. Yeah. Uh, you had University of Indianapolis, which was Roy, Royce Waltman and Bobby Knight Disciple. You know, so just amazing, amazing league. And, and um, I was blessed because we had the top assistant, the full-time assistant, the grad assistant. So as a grad assistant, I had to do a lot. I had to recruit. I had to do the weight program. And I had to do class checks. Stuff. There was a lot of things I had to do. And then at the age of 23, our full-time assistant became the women's head coach. 
23 years old, here I am all of a sudden I'm the top assistant in a, in a great Division II conference. Mm. And it was, it was unbelievable learning experience. And my boss, Jim Weitzel, who was just named the head coach at the University of Buffalo, taught me so much. Because I was young. I was, I mean, hey, I was stupid, man. I, was, I thought I knew everything. Growing up a coach's son, I, I thought I knew how to do things. He gave me so much advice that stuck out in my head. You know, no job is too big. No task is too small. When I didn't want to wet mop the floor before 6 a.m. practice. And, you know, I, I may have told our players they were dogs after losing at Southern Indiana. And he pulled me out in the hallway. says, I got news for you. Those are our dogs. We recruited them. Mm-hmm. You know, he taught me a lot. He taught me a lot of things and a lot of things that parlayed over and carried over into, into life and my business career. And so after Lewis, I went to, after my, my, was there for four years. I went to Texas A&M. Uh, and that would have been Coach Baroni's fifth or sixth year. I uh, texted him regardless, it was the second to last. And um, I was with him for two years and he was let go. And I got out. I was 28. Uh, before moving to, to Texas, I was living across the street from Wrigley Field with two of my best friends when I was coaching at Lewis, right? So mm. I'm like, There's, there has to be more life. I don't need this BS. I'm 28 years old. Let's go see what else is out there. And I went into the mortgage business, which was great. It was 1998. It was a refi boom. I was living across the street from Oak Street Beach on Lakeshore Drive. You know, you think I'd be happy, right? I made more money in three months than I made the previous two years at A&M. Now, granted, the money then wasn't what the money is now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was miserable. I was miserable and I was miserable because I had no purpose. I, I wasn't operating with a purpose. I wasn't dialed into my why. Uh, you know, my why as a basketball coach is to make a positive impact on the young man's life so he can maximize his potential on and off the court. Every day I said it to myself. That was it. I got in the mortgage business. I didn't realize that I was helping first-time homebuyers with the single biggest financial investment of their life up until that point. You know, nor did I realize I was helping people doing cash-out refis free up their hard-earned equity to do something else with their life, whether it be investment property, a big vacation, pay down debt, regardless, whatever it was. Hmm. I just looked at it as a trans, very transactional. There was nothing transformational about it for me. And I was, I was young and I was dumb and I was chasing metrics. And I didn't know what I didn't know. And I had no clue the path I was on, a path of, of, of just um, bouncing back and forth between coaching college basketball and going into mortgage business, coaching college basketball. And meanwhile, my integrity, not my morality, but my integrity was taking a nosedive because what I was doing and who I was were, were not in alignment at, at all. And I was, hmm. I was as far from being an authentic person as you possibly could be. And I didn't know it. I just thought I was trying to work hard and banging my head against the wall and I wasn't giving up. And I just, I, I just had a lot of struggles. I had a lot of struggles and, and I did that for a while and finally got out of coaching in the last seven years leading up to launching the Molitor group. Um, where, you know, we do executive coaching, leadership consulting, and keynote speaking. Seven years prior to that, I worked for a recruiting firm that was founded by a high school buddy of mine who uh, played football at the Naval Academy, was an officer of the Navy. Uh, he's a principal of SOAR Consulting, and we placed former military in jobs throughout the country. Hmm. And it was awesome. And it helped me get back a little bit of that um, relationship building, the transformational feeling you get from being a coach, which hmm. obviously – while I was doing that, it started to dawn on me how much I had missed the boat in the mortgage industry, um, that it could, it was transformational. Just if you were my client, it just wasn't that transformational. And that was on me. Right. But I don't get me wrong. I I developed some great relationships with clients and uh, referral sources and things of that nature, but not to, not to the extent I could have and was capable of. So I did that and and, and I decided to launch the Malta group because I always saw the alignment of the traits and behaviors of high-performing athletes and teams and how much they were aligned 
with um, high-performing teams and individuals uh, in business. Mm. And I, I firmly believe that the same skills, traits, and behaviors, uh, you know, they correlate. And I, I, I really... I, it was something I knew I wanted to do. And I looked at my wife. We had just bought a new home. <laughs> we had just had our second uh, our child, our little man. I don't even know. He's a few months old. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were renting out our other house because the market still blew here. And she had just got a new job. She actually was laid off from Sprint when she was five months pregnant. And life was really good for us. It was really like we were in a rhythm, right? We had a cadence going and we were making good money. And I looked at her, I said, Hey, I said, you remember that business that I'm going to start someday and this and that? Mm. She said, yeah. I go, well, I said, um, I think I want to move up the start date a little bit. She goes, Oh, okay. You want to move it up a year? Cause we were still about two years out. Right. I go, no, I go, I'm thinking like three weeks. And she goes, well, <laughs> aren't you the genius of the household today? And she walks out of my office. So I took that as the papal blessing, right? Like she said, okay, <laughs> let's do it. So I started hiring, you know, I, oh yeah, I went to work and, and that's it. That's what's brought me here. And I, I, I just have an incredible um, opportunity to, and it's funny because I try to pour value into people's lives, whether it's my coaching clients, the people I consult with, but I learned so much in the process. It's just unbelievable. You know how it is when, when you go in and you work with clients, you walk away, you're like, you learn something from them. Oh, no question. There's, man, there's so, we're going to need more than an hour. So my, my first ask is that I figure we figure out another hole in our schedule to have you back on. Absolutely. Because man, there's a lot to discuss there. Let me, let me ask you this, man, I'm going to circle back to this question. I I do want to ask you about the, the coach uh, from St. Joe. There's a question. There's many questions in there. uh, And I'm going to circle back to that. But now, now that you've you've gone from coaching, and I, I believe the, the the key phrase that you said there, and I really like it. I've heard it before, I, and I and I, I've written it down, is transactional or transformational. I love that. I love those. I love those two uh, paradoxes there. I mean, it just gets you to think. Because I did the same thing. I coached, and then I got into the mortgage industry, and I did that for six months, and I sat back and said, "What am I doing?" You know, I was, I was impacting people and kids and, you know, in communities and school. And I had, you really have that sense of uh, that, that you're really providing value. And then you're all of a sudden sitting in a cubicle selling mortgages and you just day in, I was like, what am I doing? What am I doing? This is where I was. But let me ask you this. When you made these shifts and I, and I really am in alignment with you about uh, life skills and team skills in, uh, in business that are correlated to sport. I believe that. Um, and our podcast is really driven by that. But what would be like one or two things that you carried with you outside of sports and outside of coaching a basketball team that you said, you know what, I, I have this experience in coaching and this is what I'm going to leverage in the business world. And I think that will get me to where I need to go. I don't think that, I mean, I don't need to hesitate on that one. First of all, everything's about people, right? Everything's about relationships and in a leadership position, it is, you know, we spend so much time talking about just motivating people. I think it's more than that. I think since it, it, you know, motivating, you're trying to get people to do things they might not want to do. When you inspire people and you put people in position to be successful, you're getting them, you're helping them achieve things that they may not think are, you know, they're capable of achieving. Mm. And I, I, I think the relationships is, and that's what, I'll never forget this. And our, our office in Chicago was awesome. We were at North Avenue and Wells. We were right in Old Town. Second City literally was four doors down from us. I mean, mm. it was a beautiful neighborhood. And I'll never forget the. I walk in and ironically, I wore the, 
the first day to work, I wore the same suit I wore the last <laughs> to the last game when we lost to Baylor in the Big 12 tournament. I no, wasn't meant to. I just what I put on that day. And I walked in, and it was the start of the baseball season, and there were still some D1 jobs that were getting filled. It was April, and I, I had just gotten back from I went from <laughs> I went from College Station to the Final Four in San Antonio, which tried getting fired at Texas A&M, and then the Final Four being in San Antonio this oh, year. Right. That, that was a whole lot of fun. That and was 98, from, right? Was that 98? Yep, 98. Yep. And I went, from, I went from there to – I went skiing in Vail with my family, went from back to Chicago on opening day, right? Then I woke up in Chicago to, on a buddy's couch. I said, you know what? My dog, my house, and my car are still in Texas. I need to go back there. Mm. And then when I came back, I'll never forget the first day I walked in, and I felt like I was sticking out like a turd in a punch ball, okay, for lack of a better term. And I sat in my cubicle, and you know, guy, and you know how it is. People realize that you coached, and they want they want the stories about playing Roy Williams and in Fog Allen, right? They want the stories about what it's like to go to Texas when you coach to Texas A&M. They want to hear about football games. They want to hear what they think is all the cool stuff. But then they start talking about you know, why so-and-so is awful, why say, and I realized I was in a world totally outside of my realm. Like they're talking about things that I was just living in three weeks ago. Okay. Mm. And I, I made that mistake of identifying who I was with what I did. But the one thing I was able to hold on to, the one thing I was able to hold on to was how valuable relationships were. And if I didn't know how to do a mortgage, I knew how to develop and network with you better than anybody else right? I mean, better than anybody else. And I used to, I used to tell real estate agents three things. I said, that's great. You have someone that you rely on for, for your, your, um, you know, to refer to your clients for financing. I go, but here's the deal. I said, one of three things is going to happen to that person. A, they're going to mess up. Okay. B, they're going to, they're going to be on vacation. They're going to be sick or three, they're going to die. And I hope it's not number three, but one of those three things is going to happen when they do call me. And that goes back to in coaching, all you want is a chance. All you want is an opportunity, right? As a player, that's all you really wanted was an opportunity. And that's all I wanted. But the only thing I had control over was how much value I could pour into relationships and get to know people for who they really were. And to me, that was what I took away. You know, we could sit next to no all day, right? We can sit and talk about that all day long. But at the end of the day, when I run in, when I was at the Final Four watching Porter coach last year, Loyola, and all of us are sitting on the balcony of his hotel talking – we didn't talk about the wins and losses. We didn't talk about who scored how many points or the great, you know, decision you made at halftime. We just talked. We just laughed about things we had been through together and talked and joked around. It all came down to relational stuff, you know, and, and that's it. Just, you know, it's about people and it's about getting those people to do things they're not capable. They don't think they're capable yeah. of doing. Why, why do you think that is? So this has been my experience. We, we get called in to consult uh, and my, my, the company I work for is software. So we, uh, you know, are going in to work with software teams and people will bring you in and say, we need this fixed, you know, and, and I heard this story from a friend of mine, but he's like, hey, we're brought in to fix this, this phone or this pen, right? Fix this. And the reality is you're brought in and you say you can fix it. But the, when, when you get down into the weeds of it, it's really about people. Like they may want this fixed, but it's really, but I'm wondering in your experiences, why it's so hard in the business world or the different, you know, verticals, whether that be software or finance or whatever it is, that it's so hard for people to see that it is, that it starts and ends, in my opinion, with, with relationships and people. I don't think people see that. I wonder, I wonder why or what your experience is or how you get people to shift to recognize that. 
Well, that's a great question. And, and, and the answer is going to sound simple, but it's obviously not a simple answer uh, or a simple solution. But the answer is because of leadership, because, you know, people are going to do what they're, what they're shown to do. People are going to do what an authentic leader, not just tells them to do or asks them to do, but what they're shown to do. You know, what's the culture that you create inside of your organization? Do you get people to understand the why? You know, yeah, fix this pen, but why am I fixing this pen? What's this pen going to do for you? You know, what, what is, and, and whatever that pen does for you, what's that going to do for the next person? Mm. Because there's always, you know, when you, when you can get your people to form an emotional attachment to the outcome, Okay. So say you're, say you're sending someone in to fix something mm -hmm. and to their, in their world, it's just, you know, I'm going in to do it. I'm a tech, I'm going in to fix it because that's my job. Right. Well, no, really what you're doing is you're going in there because you're going to solve a problem for the customer. And by solving that problem for the customer, you're creating more opportunities for that customer where, where in effect, that's going to positively impact that customer as a person, as a father, as a mother, uh, as a leader, uh, it's going to impact their bottom line. You know, there's so much more to it than just the, you know, what meets right. the eye. And I think, that falls on leadership if they don't if they don't get their people to understand that and it's got to be i just interviewed a gentleman yesterday jason bay uh for a podcast he'll drop here in a few weeks jason played at gordon tech high school with tommy kleinschmidt all right steve pappas god rest his soul great man uh was their coach they had 61 players 5d1 players on that team all right mm. they lost six games total in high school jason was recruited by coach b to go to creighton but tony left for texas a&m going in between Jason's senior and high school and freshman. So Jason goes to college and we were joking yesterday. He might've lost six games in college in his first seven games. Okay. <laughs> so anyways, so he, he had to learn some hard lessons, but Jason, we had an amazing conversation yesterday because he talks about getting people to understand why they do what they do. You know, what the, what the real solution is, what the real story is. It would be like, it would be like if you took someone in the, um, or a pharma industry, right? Like the, in terms of, let's say it's a cancer drug. Let's say it's a diabetes drug. All right. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden at your end of the year, people do this, companies do this. Um, at the end of the year, you're at your awards dinner, your banquet, everyone's having a great time and this and that. And you make all these awards that are like transactional awards. But then all of a sudden you have a family come up and speak and it's their father whose life you saved by selling that drug to whatever doctor you sold it to. Mm. That adds a whole different dimension to why you do what you do, doesn't it? Yeah, no question. You know, and I think, I think, you know, to answer your question though, it all falls on leadership and what is the culture that they create? Mm. Let, let me, I'm going to, I want to pivot just a little bit because I am interested in this. Uh, I'm really wrapped up in reach right now. And I believe this, and, and if you disagree with this, uh, uh, convince me. I, uh, my opinions are uh, not that deeply rooted. I have, I have opinions, and then, but, I, but I like different perspectives on them to continue to shape my opinions. Um, I believe that any athlete can be reached. That if you are coaching them, that it is your job as a coach to try to get them to whatever outcome or goal uh, that you're trying to reach as a team, that you can reach them somehow to get them in line or get them to buy in and all that. I see that in the professional world and I'm seeing it with my own kids, right? I, I, I think all of it, it's all coaching. It's all parenting. Um, and I'm, so I'm thinking like, 
could you could you give an example? I guess more athletically, when you were coaching, of how you reached kids that were unreachable, right? That that that's that's the title of a book, right? <laughs> that should be right to to reach the unreachable, and and that the thought that goes into that, and the strategies that you have to consider or overcome. Because I'm telling you, right? Because this is what I'm thinking. My oldest boy, I'm trying to still figure out how to reach him. Now he's a great, he's an amazing kid. And I know he's got more in his tank and I know, I know what his goals are and I'm trying to figure out ways to get him to reach what he's trying to get to. Now we are talking about a 10 year old, but I like the challenge of trying to figure him out of motivating for school or for basketball or for whatever other goals he may have. Um, and I know you've experienced that at AM and other places you've been. And I'm just wondering like strategies, tactics, that we can implement in terms, because we all have to reach people. We're all trying to be people of influence if we're in a leadership position. But it's hard to influence the person that you can't reach or can't convince and can't pull along. Well, and I think it goes back to the three basic questions your people are gonna ask of you. Uh, do you know me? Do you care about me and can I trust you? And I think it takes different levels of trust for different people to be able to reach them and connect with them. And you know, why you might have your guard up could be different than why I have my guard up, right? Your experiences, which you are shaped by are different than my experience and I am shaped by. So you've got to go, and this is something I pulled from John Maxwell. I love John Maxwell's stuff mm -hmm. and I consider him a mentor. John Maxwell says this, he says, go to where they are. And not just physically, but go to where they are mentally, go to where they are emotionally, figure out what's, you know, you have to figure out what makes them tick. And, and one of the things I used to do in the recruiting industry, we all, we all had the questions like, like, who's your best mentor or what's your greatest success story or who inspires you? There's a, there's a huge follow-up question to that. Why? You know, who's been the biggest influence in your life? Why? And then there's another why? And then you keep asking that question, mm -hmm. but you, you, you have to keep, you have to keep digging and by digging. I don't mean by being annoying, but you have to keep working at the relationship because that person is going to be reached when they're ready to be reached. Not when you're ready to reach them. Mm. They're going to be reached when you're ready to be reached, you know, and, and, and there might be some, Hey, Hey, I'll tell you this. I, I had a kid who I thought nobody, nobody was going to reach this kid, right? Nobody. Mm. Easiest kid, easiest kid I've ever connected with. Easiest. Now, I've had players come from very good backgrounds, very good households. Um, nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing to be. They were just. They were brutal, man. They just had a wall built in around them, and and it took it took peeling away at the layers, knowing some of the personal things they had going on in their life that they were so busy covering up, they didn't have energy to be connected. Okay. So I think for each person, you've got to, you know, they need to know the, they need to know that you know who they are. They need that you know who they are. They need to know that you care about them and they absolutely need to have a level of trust with you before you ever can reach them. And I think if you can get them to change the way they look at things, they'll start to look at the way, you know, they'll start to way, change the way they think, you know, mm -hmm. the things they look. So my, my point being is it's got to be, and you said something, you said something that we talk about in business all the time when you start, and I'm not going to go down the, the rabbit hole of ripping on, on generations. Okay. But people ask me all the time, how in the hell do you connect with the millennials? I said, well, how do you? Well, no, I'm asking you to tell me. I go, well, you're never, if you can't figure this out on your own, cause here's the bottom line. You can sit here and whine and complain about them all the time, but guess what? People did it about your generation too. 
Okay. Right. It's your responsibility. It's our responsibility as leaders to figure out what makes them tick and to figure out how to get them to not just buy in, but believe in what we're selling and what we're doing. And, and I think you've got to be patient with it and you've got to see somebody for what they really are, not for what you want them to be. And I think you've got to get to that whole connection with them of knowing them, caring for them and having the, for them having the ability to trust you. Do you, do you find, I, I, I believe every, everything you're saying and alluding to in the world of college basketball or college athletics, you know, that time that you spend with families and players and classrooms and study halls and dining halls and being on the road and airplanes. I mean, you are just, you're always in that world of connecting and inspiring and motivating and, and trying to paint, you know, this, this, this athlete that is from 18 to 22 years old and trying to set the table with them for the rest of their lives, right? That, that, that is something like, you know, I'm the proudest thing I can say about my time in coaching is that I stood up in seven weddings of former players. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And that means Pretty a lot. Awesome. That yep. is amazing. Right. Yep. Absolutely. And, and I'm wondering with your experience, why that doesn't happen in the professional world. See, I think it does. I, I, I really do think it happens in a professional world. Now, I'm blessed because of what I do. I'm around a lot of successful people, right? I'm, a, I'm around the Cody Fosters of Advisor Excel. I'm around Rich Sheridan's of Menlo Innovations. Um, I mean, I can, I'm around the David Coveys. I'm around, you know, I can go on and on. The, the, the Dean and Dwight, uh, Dwight Owens. I'm around um, uh, Tiffany Bova. I mean, I have an opportunity to talk to some amazing people and to see how they do it. And I'll tell you what, though, I'm also around my wife. And my wife, she's got it. They've got it where she, where she works. You know, she's at Comcast Business. And the team she's on right now, they've got it, man. Brian, her boss, he gets it. And it's awesome. But I, you know, I, I think First of all, you spend the majority of your waking hours with the people at work if you no go question. to an office every day, okay? At yeah. least emotionally you do, okay? So what is it that you can do as a leader to make your people's lives better? What can you do as a leader to, to make them understand that they're not just punching a time clock, that their work matters and to get them vested into it and get them, I always go back to getting them emotionally attached and that's it. Everything you do should be try to get your people emotionally attached and I'm not saying do it with smoke and mirrors. I'm saying show them legitimately that mm -hmm. what they do matters because it does. It really does. And if it doesn't matter to you as a leader, then you're not a leader and you should get out of there. And, you know, I think, I think it does exist. And when it does, here's a big thing. I've, I, this is huge for me. Um, people talk all the time about being like family, right? And you know this, being a coach and being around athletics. It's not about being like a family. It's being a family. Okay. You know, I tell a story all the time. It's one of the hard lessons I learned um, as a player my freshman year. So I graduated from high school on a uh, Sunday. On Thursday of that week, now you senior in high school, you think your last summer, you're going to screw off, go to North Avenue Beach, you know, do your thing, get your workouts in. Coach B requested that we all be in Omaha for the summer. Couldn't demand it, couldn't, but requested. So we were all there. And we worked our lips off that summer. I mean, my job, I was a Mr. Kool-Aid man, and I worked on an air hammer. It was brutal, but we lifted weights. Guys went to study, or guys went to school. Uh, we played games. We had skill work. You know, what do you do, right? And we became very, very close. We, be we started to really become a family. Uh, and then we got to go home for about five days before school started. Then school started, and you're done. You don't go home. You know I mean, that was it. So 
the Wednesday before the season's going to start, coach calls us in. Wednesday mornings were a morning off. Okay, we lifted Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday in the morning. Study hall seven to nine every night, Sunday through Thursday. So Wednesdays, you know, we'd sleep until like seven before we went to breakfast check, but we most likely may have gone out on Tuesday nights, right? Right. So this Wednesday, we get a phone call. We all get phone calls from our manager and saying, hey, coach wants to see all of you in the locker room now. So your first thought is, okay, who did what? All right, who, who screwed this whole hour left of sleep I had? Who screwed this up? So we get there, and no one in the season was starting. We're all kind of – we're ready to go, and, you know, no one did anything. And, and Coach B gets up there. He goes, fellas, he goes, I don't know how to tell you this. He goes, but I'm going to cut to the chase. The NCAA has put us on probation. We are banned from postseason play for one year. It has nothing to do with us. Okay. Um, it's out of our control. Bottom line, there was not enough participants at Creighton now, Big East, right? Now, now back then, Missouri Valley. And we were the typical Jesuit Catholic baseball, basketball. We were the big sports. Yep. And we didn't have enough participants in the other sports and the non revenue sports. And love baseball is not really a revenue sport, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And so we were put on probation. And James Farr, our senior, our only senior from Mount Carmel, uh, could have left. I mean, this was before the day of transfers, right? Before if your coach sneezes wrong, you get to go transfer and be <laughs> eligible. To I'm going to put my name in a portal. That's great. <laughs> and so anyways, the NCAA told James, you can go anywhere in the country and be eligible immediately. It's your senior year. This has nothing to do with anything you guys did. And James stayed. He said, no, these are my guys. He goes, I trust it. These are my guys. We're going to do what we can do. Now, that meant we couldn't play in a Missouri Valley tournament. Because why have us play in it, win it, then you don't even send a team to the NCAA tournament. Right. Well, in, in January, in January, they reversed the decision. They gave us a one year to get our act together and what have you. So we were picked to finish second to last in the league. We won the league, won the league tournament, went to the NCAA. Now, why do I tell that story? The only reason we were able to do that, the only reason we were able to grow through that adversity the first three months of the season, October, November, December, well, more than that, January, February, the only reason we were able to do it is because we became a family. Hmm. We may not like each other some days. It might not all be unicorns and rainbows, but we cared about each other. And, you know, we bust each other's stones. But if you came in from the outside and tried to challenge us or challenge our culture, you were screwed. Okay, we were a family. And when, when you create that family atmosphere in the business world, you make it a safer place for people to take chances, to take risks, to get outside their comfort zone, to grow, to hold themselves accountable, to allow you to hold them accountable and to take the feedback you give them, no matter how critical it is, and to do something with it. So, so how? How? I, be, I believe all that, right? And uh, people that have listened to our podcast know I believe in that, and that is a – I'm not saying it's like a, a purpose and a why and a mission that I have with the podcast, but I do believe that the, the closeness that you have athletically can be transitioned into the business world. But, I, but, and I, I, but what, how? So that, that's the why, that's the kind of the what it well, like this, but give us some strategies on how. So your wife has this great. Uh, well, I, so I'll tell you, so it's funny you should ask that because I just had this conversation. You know, I had, I had this event at Texas A&M last week, and, and Don Yeager and I um, did three keynotes each and did a bunch of teaching, and, and um, we spent a lot of time talking about this. And, and one of the things I talked about was recruiting in a tight labor market and stopping the revolving door. And basically, I talked about culture. Okay. Mm -hmm. And here's, here's, here's the, the, what I've taken from the best of the best and the study and the research I've done and the people that I know, those, those cultures, those championship cultures, as I like to call them. All right. 
first of all, they're value-based and they're purpose-driven. Okay, what are your values as an organization? And I'm not talking about slap, but you know, something on the wall that you hired, uh, uh, you outsourced a company to do for you. I'm talking about what are the values that you and your people sat down and put together? You, you, you collaborated on, right? So there is, again, not just buy-in, but believing in those values because they're an extension of who you are, what you stand for, and they will be the foundation of your success. And they're always going to be the referral point for your level of authenticity as an organization. So what are your values? Number two, what's your vision? Where are you? Where are you going? Where and how compelling is your vision? Not just we want to be a uh, twenty million dollar a month, you know, uh, twenty million dollars a quarter, you know, company. What is your vision? Give give your people, give yourself, give your people something that they can see, something they can they can feel in their heart, something that they can touch, something they can hear. What's it like? Like if someone walks into your company today off the street, they walk into your company today. Can they, can they tell what your culture is like? Is it a positive, is it full of positive energy? What's the vibe? What's the, you know, what's going on inside of it? But so make that part of your compelling vision. Okay. And then, and then the third thing, the third thing is what's your place like? In other words, what is the environment? Is it an environment that's conducive to becoming a family? Is it something that speaks to your values? Is it something that speaks to your, to your vision? All right. And then what type of, um, what type of people are you, are you, you know, what are you doing with the people? How are you connecting with the people to share the value, share the vision, right? To get feedback on how things are going. How do you go to where your people are and is your culture connected? In other words, are people in silos? Okay. I mean, you see it, the bigger the corporations you go to, the more silos you see them in, but, but are people in silos or are people engaged with each other? Cause the great cultures are all connected. Now, I'm, I'm going to put that one on the shelf and come back to it though. Now, what, what is your narrative? What's your story? How do you connect your, your past to your future? Think about the great basketball programs you've been a part of, right? There's a story there. Yep. You know, like I, I go back to the story. The example I used last week was Loyola, their final four run. Porter Moser, one of my best friends, he's a brother. We played together at Creighton, coached together at Texas A&M. Mm. We, talk, we talk about stuff like this all the time. What, you know, Everyone thinks like his, the story for Loyola basketball was Sister Jean. I love Sister Jean. I got a picture right over there. I love Sister Jean. But, but what Porter did, the narrative he tied to was the 1963 national championship team. And not because they just because they won the national championship, but because of the, um, I can't believe I'm going to draw a blank on it, um, the game of change. When they played Mississippi State in East Lansing in the NCAA tournament, Mississippi State had to had to escape town, get out, get across their state borders under the you know the clouds of darkness, um, because the governor ordered them not to leave the state to play a um, desegregated basketball team. Right, you can't go play anyone who has minorities on a team. So they played in East Lansing, Michigan. But Porter went to with that team. He went to the White House in 2013 and spent three days with them in D.C. Had meals with them, went on tours with them, visited with President Obama with them, and he said he said Eddie. He says, getting to know them, he goes, their culture then was exact same as the culture I'm trying to build now. It's mm. family. They respected each other. They cared about each other, right? Um, every single thing they did, what they persevered through. They told stories about when they played it, you know, in New Orleans. One, you know, black players had to stay in this hotel. The white guys had to stay in this. So as a company, as an organization, what's your narrative? Tie, tie your past to your future, you know, and how is that driving your people? Um, towards that. So I think those are all things that I think those are all things that you can do. And then, and then when we go back to people, take that off the shelf, go back to people. 
what kind of people are you bringing into your organization? And are you compromising the culture that you've built for a high performer? I don't think so. Cause what you want to do is you want to build a culture that's worth fighting for. To me, that's the, that's the absolute big, if you're value-based and you have a singleness of purpose, I think all these things are going to happen within an organization. And the thing is that it has to be a sustained effort to realize sustained success. I love that phrase, a culture worth fighting for, right? If you can like, I think that's actually a big phrase. If you, if, if you can develop a culture, the phrase that I've used in coaching and some of the speaking that I do is what's us and what's not us. And then being a, having your people know what is us, what, looks like us, how we behave, how we talk, how we treat one another and how we perform and what's not us. Right. And then being able to fight for those. Right. And, and being able to hold each other accountable to those, I think is big. Actually. I love that. A culture that, that we're willing to fight for Um, because Mm -hmm. listen, every, every successful athletic team has a vibe and has a, has a feel and has a, you know, and has a taste to it. It just really does. And it's something, and I, I believe the great companies we have worked for have that. Um, and I love your phrase and I, and I've tried to, and, and I'm creating some talks that I'm going to be giving and I'm, I'm stealing it a little bit from you, but um, mine is called the athletics of, of software, right? Mm-hmm. And you actually uh, have a phrase called the athletics of business. What's the podcast? Yeah, that's our brand. That's a podcast. And that's it. The athletics of business right there. I mean, it's all, it's all that. That's it. And, and, and now granted, and one thing, and you, you'll speak to this, that doesn't mean you have to be an athlete to be successful. It's just our point of reference. That's all that is. Yeah. You could be, you could take, you know, my high school band director, I didn't, I was not allowed near the band room in high school, but our director, our high school band director does the exact same thing on an international level. Um, in the music space, mm. the exact same thing, but it, that's it, right? The athletics of software. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you this. And, and I didn't ask you this offline. And um, so I don't mean to put you on the spot, If, it, but uh, I'm guessing you are still closely tied with Texas A&M and the new head coach at Texas A&M. I have followed for years and, and uh, him and I are the same age. And he actually, when I was coaching in Colorado at a junior college, he recruited some of our kids. So I got to know him when we were both, 23 years old or something and there was something about him I really liked and he wouldn't know me from anybody if we ran into each other Um, and it's Buzz Williams and Buzz was the head coach at Virginia Tech and is now the head coach at Texas A&M and I'm I'm here's my question why Buzz Williams why do you feel Buzz got that job and I'm not talking about winning or on the court performance but there's something and, and I mean this enduringly to him because I really admire him. There's something different about Buzz. There's just something different about him. And I'm wondering what's your take on him and A&M and what he brings to the table, not X's and O's, but what he brings to the table in terms of culture for your program. Well, and let's, yeah. And so X's and O's, he's very good at what he does. So that goes without saying. So, so put that to the side because you're, you, you're spot on. And here's the thing that I, I, I was on TexAgs radio down there a few times. And here's the thing I told them when they got, when, when they decided there and everybody in the, in the country knew Buzz was going to get the job. Right. And Billy Kennedy is a friend of mine and Billy is the greatest man in the, the business of, of, of the college coaching business. He's just a great man. Right. And it didn't work out. And, um, I was just a great man. And Buzz, here's why Buzz, I, everyone talks about splash hires, right? We talk about it in business. We talk about in athletic splash hires. Buzz is not a splash hire. He is way better than a splash hire. Here's why. He wants to be there. 
Okay. He, he, he's from Texas. He understands what Texas A&M is all about. He understands the challenges. He's not going in there with rose colored glasses. He knows the work it takes to get done. He also knows that being a football school and being a basketball school are not mutually exclusive. You can do that. You, you can be both. Okay. It's been proven. You can be both. He has a, he has a huge love for Texas A&M, what it stands for, what it represents. He genuinely cares about his kids as people and what they do off the court as much as what they do on the court, okay? He's going to teach them as much about the game of life as he is the game of basketball, and he's a damn good teacher of basketball, okay? And he's going to pour every ounce of energy. I'm talking all the way down to his little toe on his left foot, okay? He's going to pour every ounce of energy he has into getting that program to the level they believe that it can be at and it can be at and it will get there. And you can already see it with his recruiting. Um, I don't even know exactly who his staff is. I've heard a couple different things. Um, now his world just changed today. I don't know if you saw what happened, but the AD left. I saw the AD left. I yeah, saw it this it, morning actually. So yeah, yeah the AD's going to LSU. You knew, and you knew as soon as the That's whole tough. LSU, well, it, it is tough and it's tough. It's tough for the football faithful because Jimbo and, and, and Scott are so tied at the hip. But anyways, but Buzz is the guy because he he gets Texas A&M and he believes in Texas A&M and he's not using it as a, as a, as a uh, launching pad. Uh, you know, Mark Turgeon used it as a launching pad. He made it very clear when he was there that wasn't his last job. You know, um, different coaches have gone there and tried to use it as a launching pad. Hey, Billy wanted to be there. Billy, Billy bleeds A&M Maroon, right? Billy's as true as a person can be. But with Buzz, what you're getting is a person from the ACC with success who gets it, who wants to be a part of it, and he wants to make it um, something very, very special. And, I, and, I, and he connects with people. He just connects with people down there. Yeah, so what I hear, this is what I'm taking away from that. And for those that are listening, yes, this is a – uh, a sports-centered podcast, but hopefully you're learning a lot about leadership and business and entrepreneurship and personal growth and all that. But if you just take the if you take Texas A&M out and you plug in Google or Apple or Microsoft or the the car the car shop down the street, and you plug in somebody that is wants to be there wants to impact people, wants to uh, put them on a national stage, doesn't want to be stuck in the middle. Like, and those are everything that Coach Molitor just said about buzz, the, the, all those traits, like rewind and go listen to that because I'm going gonna, I'm going to listen to it again. I'm going to write it down and I'm going to remove Buzz Williams from it and I'm going to say, why can't that be me with my clients? Why can't that be me with my company? Why can't that be me as a car salesman? Like, I just believe that. And it's about, and I wrote it down this morning, all great people in life that are crushing it, here are the commonalities of high achievers, energy and enthusiasm. I, I forgot where mm -hmm. I heard that this morning, but mm -hmm. when I was thinking about buzz a little bit this morning, with oh, yeah. and it's like, how, how can you not? Yeah, right? you got to bring yeah. juice every day because yeah. you, you are the leader. These people are looking to you for inspiration and action and direction and vision. And if you can't bring juice every day to what you're doing, whether it be basketball or selling a car, then, then you're just going to be mired in the middle of all this. And you're just going to like, it's not what I don't think we were, we were geared to be in the middle. I think we were set up to be extraordinary, but I think we've got to uncover this stuff. And I think buzz is like what I admire about Buzz and what I take away from Buzz, it has nothing to do with basketball, and this is from an outsider that watches him on TV and watches his games. He is different. And, and I think he decided, hey, I'm, I, that, that, I think he's authentic. Let me say it that way. He's authentic to who he is 
and he's different in that regard, right? And, and it, it fascinates me because you just got to be who you are and just be the best you can be and develop and grow and let the, and, and try to make an impact and have energy and enthusiasm. And that guy has it. I was, you know, again, I met him when we were 24 years old and he recruited a player named Donald Harris out of Lamar junior college. I was with a coach of mine, uh, Greg young. I don't know if you know, coach young, he's kind of a lifer in Texas. And, uh, and Buzz was just, he brought the juice even at 24. And now he's my age. He's got, he's 46, 47. So I was interested in that take uh, on, on, on that hire down there. It's funny because he isn't, you know, sometimes what happens is guys will, will get that too cool factor, right? They're like yeah. that when they're 24, 28, 30, a cool fact, cool fact. This is what I, one of the things I love about Porter too. And I love about coach K and Tom Izzo, the great ones, right? Tony Bennett, they get better. Like they, they, they're, it's, I don't know if it's, they're managing their energy or they're channeling it the right way, but they just get better And buzz. I'm out. First time I ever met buzz was at a coach's clinic at Maine West high school. Um, 2002 or 2000 and 2002, 2003, nah, maybe 2005, whatever. And he was, he just gotten the head job at Marquette, just gotten it. And I was like, you meet those people that you know are just going to, they're just going to do something. And he was one yeah. of those guys. And he obviously hasn't, uh, he hasn't, um, there's failed. something, you know what I mean? Just, there, there is. And, and here's it, like you said, though, if you flip this around and you take, take your company, I don't care if you're small size, mid size, larger, but here's what Buzz did. First of all, it's a, it's a, it's a hundred million dollar organization. He just took over. Okay. Or he's a part of, I should say really. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's a million dollar organization, but he took it over. And, and the first thing he's going to do, is he going to say, okay, here's where we're at. Let's, let's, let's figure out where we're really at. Let's, let's understand the reality. Let's accept it, not settle for it. And let's increase our self-awareness by knowing what we're good at, what we suck at, where we need help and what we're going to do to get that help. You know, mm -hmm. who are we going to hire? What type of people do we need? He already knows the culture he's going to create, right? How are we going to fill people? How are we going to fill that culture with people who not only have this job skills to do it, that have the talent, but also aren't going to jeopardize and compromise what we stand for, represent what's going to make us go as people. Mm. And that's the first thing Buzz did. And you can do that on an organizational level. And it's not an overnight process. It's not an overnight success. But the thing is, he hit the ground feet running. The tweets started. If you follow him on Twitter, yep. he's nuts. The tweets started. The appearances started. I mean, my guys at Texas said when he walked in the studio, it was like the energy level just went off the charts. And I'm going to tell you what, those guys aren't shy for – they're not shy for energy there. So, mm -hmm. and here's, here's the thing. And, you know, we talk about – and sometimes I find myself talking in different industries. I work a lot in the finance industry, whether it be insurance, mortgage, planning, investing, you know, whatever it is, banking. But you, you find those leaders that are quiet. Right. They're, they're quiet, but they're very, very good at what they do. They're soft-spoken, but they're powerful. Look at John Wooden. Hey, John Wooden wasn't a cheerleader. He didn't bounce up and down, and, but he had a high energy. He had a positive energy. And when he looked at you and he talked, you knew the message he was conveying, right? Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I think that's the one thing is you've got to fill those rooms with the right type of people. And that's what he's doing there, and it's no different than you would no. do at, at, at any business. No question. No question. Hey, coach, listen, I want to, I want to honor your time. And listen, let me, let me start by saying, so we've had a few people on everybody, everybody that's been a guest. Uh, and I don't want to sit there and say one guest is better than the other or anything along those lines. The guests that have been brought on have, uh, have impacted all of us. So if you're listening, but this is without question the episode that I am going to go back and open my notebook up and take notes. Cause there's little phrases in there, you know, about, you know, what he just said about buzz, not settling, like figuring out where you're at 
and not settling for where you're at, but really trying to paint that picture on where you will be and how you can get help, where the help comes from, all that. Like that's all impactful stuff for any leader, any director, any C-suite person that's trying to take their, you know, we don't want to be in the middle. Like I, that's my big mission of 2019 is for me personally to do whatever I can to get out of the middle and to do extraordinary things. And it doesn't, to coach's point, it doesn't happen overnight, but if I can identify different things I can do to get better and just make 1% improvement, the 1% mindset. But I appreciate your time because I know you're hey. busy and I know you're doing a lot. I would love to have you back on because there's a lot to uncover and unpack here and a lot we can do to impact more people. Coach, absolutely. I mean, I'd love to get back on. We could keep talking now. I, I feel bad. We got to we gotta wrap ah. it up. But we, uh, we could keep talking. There's so much good stuff. I love what you're doing. I love it. Um, kudos to you again for yeah. the century mark on the episodes and a very happy 21st birthday. If yeah. you will. <laughs> man, I'm, I'm, stuck, I'm stuck at 29. Yeah. I, I am getting old, man. I'm 46. So no, I appreciate that. My, my, uh, youngest son celebrates a birthday a day after mine on Saturday. He'll be nine. We're, yeah, we're uh, looking oh, for that. Cool. Yeah. It's cool. It's cool, you know, and, and uh, there's great blessings there. But listen, Coach, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate your stories and insight and everything you. you're doing with your business. And uh, for everybody listening, uh, Coach, how can people track you down? What's the best way for people I, to get in touch with you? I, I appreciate that. So for, uh, for our consulting and executive coaching and keynote speaking, go to themolitorgroup.com. That's the Molitor Group, M-O-L-I-T-O-R group.com. All right, and go ahead, and there's all sorts of stuff there for you. The podcast, the Athletics of Business podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, the website, which is theathleticsofbusiness.com. Um, I, I would love to hear feedback. I mean, we, we've had some, like you, we've had some just amazing guests, and that's, that's just what makes it, that's what makes it so rich. Um, and, and feel free, honestly, feel free to hit me up with an email, ed at themolitorgroup.com. I got a personal page on Facebook, just at Molitor. I got the Molitor group on Facebook. I love LinkedIn. LinkedIn's a way I love to communicate. Yep. That's what's responsible for us getting connected. I'm very yep. grateful for that. Um, I love LinkedIn. Twitter, at the Molitor group on Twitter. Instagram, I'm on there, is at Molitor. Uh, so I am everywhere and uh, anywhere, but, but reach out, connect. Would love to serve your listeners uh, any way I possibly could. And I look forward to getting connected again. Yeah, we'll do it. And everybody that uh, he gave a lot of ways to contact him, look in our show notes. I'll have everything in there. And with that, listen, the idea of this is to get out of your cubicle, right? And the title of this is get out of your cube. And I think coaches given us action items and uh, mindsets and strategies to get us out of our cubicle. But the reality is this, this is another thing for 2019. Be inspired. But that, but it's, that's not enough. At least that's not enough for me. I've got to be inspired to action. And Coach has definitely given me that today. There's a lot of action I can take uh, on the inspiration we've received. So with that, everybody, get out of your cubicle and have a great rest of the week. Take care.